So Trump's 2016 victory was a surprise to most pollsters, journalists, everybody really, even Trump it seems. And immediately everyone wants to know what went wrong in the predictions. The narrative in the media becomes centered around this question of understanding the Trump base. There's this flurry of analysis, much of it anecdotal and conjectural about what motivates Trump voters. And with each analysis, there is this implicit and often explicit political conclusion about what this means for the struggle against Trump and Trumpism. Now, within the category of Trump voters, there is a subcategory of voters. And this subcategory is like the holy grail to many analysts. Not only is this subcategory large enough to have determined Trump's electoral college victory, but this subcategory of voters is also quite mysterious at first glance. Its existence defies common sense assumptions about politics and culture in this country. These are the voters who voted for Obama, the first black president in U.S. history, and then in 2016 flipped to Trump, a white nationalist authoritarian sexual predator. They are called Obama-Trump voters, and everyone wants to get inside their heads. Who are these people? What were they thinking? And what lessons can we draw from these answers in the fight against Trumpism? In this episode, Andrew Kleiman and I will be getting to the bottom of the mystery of the Obama-Trump voter, contrasting Andrew's recent findings with that of much of the mainstream left. All this and more on this episode of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. Please also consider making a donation on our website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In this episode, we'll be discussing Obama-Trump voters with Andrew Kleiman. But first, we're going to take a few minutes to discuss some hot topics in this week's news. In this part of the show, we discuss some current events. I'm Brendan Cooney again. Uh, and I'm Andrew Kleiman. Um... So today we want to talk some about the immigration policies of the Trump administration. And one thing that's been happening recently has to do with um, the de deportation of people, uh, you know, non-citizens with serious medical conditions. The U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has the authority to defer these people's deportation uh, people being treated in the U.S. Uh, some are receiving very sophisticated treatment for rare conditions and illnesses that they can't get that kind of uh, medical care in their own countries. And about 500 people uh, each year are granted that deferral. But in early August, uh, the USCIS informed about 400 of these people that it would no longer be processing deferred action requests, and it told them to leave the country within 33 days. 
Uh, many of them, if not most of them, are, are going to die. Uh, the letters have rightly been called death sentence. And there was a huge outcry. Um, but it was somewhat muted because the, the, the Trumpites did not advertise this policy. Uh, after the huge outcry, they partly backtracked. Uh, in early September, they said they would resume the application of the applications for delayed action, delayed deportation, the ones that were filed before August 7. Well, what about, you know, anything since? We, we, don't, we don't know. Um, but in any case, uh, the news um, agency Politico uncovered an internal memo prepared by the head of strategy of USCIS, and she recommended that the agency's authority to grant deferral be revoked. Uh, she wrote that uh, the USCIS strongly believes that continuing to accept such requests, even for narrow medical criteria, will create a de facto program of criteria to allow people in the country, which is not in statute or regulations. Uh, and she wrote that any expanded authority for the agency, quote, runs counter to the president's agenda to enforce our existing laws and potentially contrary to his goal of making sure aliens are self-sufficient. Um, that's rather Machiavellian. Obviously, people who need life-saving treatment in the U.S. aren't self-sufficient. So, um, as I said, the cancellation of these medical deferrals was not something that the Trumpites advertised. You know, Trump didn't tweet about it. Uh, it was done very quietly. What do you think about this action of, of the Trump administration? Obviously, it's a decision that's quite shocking in its brutality. Um, the fact that it was rolled out quietly and sneakily is interesting. You know, a lot of Trump's um, inhumanity is on full public display. The concentration camps, the ICE raids, and other policies like that are very performative, and they seem like they're an attempt to drum up the support of his base, um, a base which is motivated by and attracted to, aroused by, the cruelty and inhumanity of concentration camps and ICE raids and um, calls to violence against immigrants and so forth. But the fact that it was rolled out silently, sneakily, means that there's something else going on in addition to just the immediate media spectacle and the effect on poll numbers. I think Trump has surrounded himself and staffed his administration with so many of these white nationalist, um, proto-fascist, fascist nut jobs that they are trying to really uh, enact this policy of, of like sort of, sort of a type of ethnic cleansing on this country, trying to purge uh, refugees and brown people out of this country at all costs. You mentioned that the, the action is cruel and brutal, um, and it's hard to disagree with that. Um, and in this case, the cruelty and brutality are gratuitous. It's not like these people whose lives depend on getting medical treatment in the U.S. are a threat to anybody. They also must be a statistically insignificant amount of people. I mean, when Trump talks about, oh, we don't have room for more immigrants, this can't be very many people at all for him to be worried about. It, it, it can't be because uh, fewer than, than 500 or so people are granted this per year, and the authority of the USCIS only goes back, uh, it was only given this authority uh, back in 2003, 
So I don't know, that's 16 years times 500 people. We're talking about 8,000 people in a country of 320 million people or so. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a very, very small group of people. <laughs> some, some of these people are, you know, like close to being attached to machines all the time. Yeah. Uh, they're not a threat to anyone. It's cruel, it's brutal, and it's gratuitous. Yeah. They don't have to do it. No. Um, so the question is, why are they, they doing something that's not only cruel and brutal, but gratuitously cruel and, and brutal? Why do you think so? I mean, we've all seen the Trump rallies. We know that parts of his base are very aroused by and very excited about um, the opportunity to scream hate speech at perceived enemies. So there's a lot of political capital to be made from playing into these calls to violence and hatred. And this sort, of, this sort of performative displays of cruelty are appealing to people. We know that his base is attracted to authoritarian ideas as well as white nationalist ideas. And this is sort of the hallmark of like a fascist or proto-fascist base. But also the fact that some of these things are happening uh, quietly or secretly or behind the backs of the media and the base means that there's also this like accelerating internal dynamic within the Trump administration that is, is continuing to try to outdo itself in terms of uh, cruelty and brutality. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, this can all be a, a, an appeal to Trump's base uh, on the basis of the cruelty, you know, in, in, uh, in line with Adam Serwer's thesis uh, that the cruelty is the point. It can be all in line with that, even if nobody sat down and said, let's revoke these specific deferrals in order to be cruel. Okay, it, it's, it, it could be part of that because... That's the, the nature of Trump's policies, to be cruel and just to extend the policies, apply them here, the new logic. You're going to be cruel, even gratuitously so. Yeah, that, that makes absolute sense to me. I'm not a scholar of fascism, but my understanding is that one of the questions that um, scholars of fascism talk about is the momentum and dynamism of fascist societies. And they ask questions about why certain societies had this, uh, were able to maintain this like radicalizing momentum where, you know, every year policies got more brutal and more cruel, like the Nazis, obviously, um, versus some fascist societies which seem to lose that radical momentum and lapse into more of like an authoritarian society that didn't quite have that radical dynamism of constantly increasing the, the crazy. I mean, like the Nazis reached a state where they were just parts of the party and parts of the base that were purely fanatical and outside of any kind of rational material interest or any kind of logical political interest, just total crazy for the sake of the crazy. Oh, this is interesting. Can you mention any, any names? I'm thinking particularly of Robert Paxton's book, The Anatomy of Fascism. I'm pretty sure he discusses that dynamic in his book. I haven't read that for a couple of years, and I'm not a scholar of fascism. But I think, like, he would ask the question of, like, why did a society like Nazi Germany have this sort of momentum that accelerated to the point where they were exterminating millions of people versus something like um, 
Franco Spain, which seemed to lapse into more of an authoritarian society after a certain amount of time. And honestly, I don't quite remember the different theories about what drives a fascist society further into increasing radicalization, but I assume that part of it is just that if you know parts of your party and parts of your base are attracted to the cruelty, um, cruelty is something that you become uh, anesthetized or desensitized to after a while. And so if you want to keep that radical energy, you have to amp things up a little bit uh, all the time in order to uh, keep people interested in the project. They need another fix, and they, they, the existing cruelty is not, not doing it anymore, so they need more, more jolts, more doses. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, a Marxist humanist podcast, and in a moment... You will be listening to Andrew Kleiman discussing Obama-Trump voters. So, Andrew, you have referred to one of the dominant narratives about uh, the motivations of Obama-Trump voters as the anti-neoliberal left narrative. Can you explain this narrative? Yeah. um, First of all, by anti-neoliberal left, I don't mean just people who are opposed to neoliberalism. Nobody on the left likes so-called neoliberalism, um, but we use the term anti-neoliberal left and the anti-neoliberal left narrative to refer to people who regard neoliberalism as the main enemy and the thing that needs to be overcome versus, for instance, the far right, uh, Trumpism uh, and and so forth. Uh, And the anti-neoliberal left, uh, even before uh, Trump got his electoral college victory, um, was casting, uh, portraying uh, the people, you know, going all gaga, maga uh, for Trump uh, as people who were disaffected. Uh, They had been pummeled by neoliberalism and globalization and financialization for decades, and now they were rising up uh, and rebelling against neoliberalism. Um, and so even before the election, um, the anti-neoliberal left narrative, basically, to the extent it did not ignore the racism, xenophobia, misogyny, uh, and so forth, authoritarianism of uh, Trump voters, typically, um it minimized that and tried to portray the Trump vote uh, as a, a vote uh, against neoliberalism. Uh, and then when it became clear that there were millions, uh, you know, six million, nine million uh, people who voted for Obama in, let's say, 2012, uh, and then voted for Trump in 2016, um, the anti-neoliberal left narrative uh, was that this was a, a, a vote of protest and outrage against neoliberalism. And the neoliberals are, of course, the people who are responsible for, then for Trump's victory. Uh, the centrists, uh, Democratic Party, regulars, Hillary Clinton, 
and not, of course, the, the people who um, voted for third parties or didn't vote at all or the people urged them, you know, not to worry about Trump and, and so forth. The existence of the Obama-Trump voter seems to reinforce this narrative, right? Because we assume that racist authoritarians wouldn't be voting for the first black president in the U.S. That, that is the factoid. That is the one single piece of information uh, on which all of this hangs. Um, some people assume that. Some people have never assumed that. Um, Jamel Bowie, you know, right at the, right at the beginning, this was November of uh, 2016. He was already putting forward alternative explanations, uh, for why that might be the case. Um, but it wasn't only like the anti, uh, neoliberal left that was facilely assuming that, uh, of course, no racist would have ever, have ever voted for Obama. Um, that was being said among mainstream commentators, even statistically informed people like Nate Cohn uh, of the Monkey Cage, um, or is he from the New York Times? I can't remember, but uh, one, of, one of those uh, people who do political statistics. Um, so, I mean, there were people skeptical about that um, trope. Uh, it's not actually a piece of evidence. Okay, the the, right. the evidence the, the evidence is that they voted for Obama and then they, and then they voted for Trump. Uh, that doesn't tell you why. So it's an open issue. But there was a facile assumption that well, of course, no racist would have ever voted for Obama. Right. Right. So it seems like we're still dealing with the political conclusions that have been drawn from these anti-neoliberal left narratives today in people's perspective on how to fight Trumpism, uh, both in the 2020 elections and on the day-to-day -day level. Can we, can we lay out sort of explicitly what these political conclusions are that have been drawn from this anti-neoliberal left narrative? Well, um, I'm not actually sure that they're conclusions rather than premises. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that, that these folks begin with a certain political orientation and then they, they, they apply facts and use facts to try to bolster that. Um, I mean, well prior to the 2016 election, you know, for decades, um, they, the anti-neoliberal left has regarded uh, neoliberalism as the main enemy, uh, neoliberalism as a decisive break in the character uh, of capitalism in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world. Um, with the 2016 victory of Trump in the Electoral College, uh, they face a big problem, which is that the, the center of power is very different. It's not, you know, standard centrist neoliberalism. We've got the far right in power uh, that has become increasingly clear. Uh, and the attitude of the, the um, anti-neoliberal left people has been, well, all of this focus on Trump is a distraction. You hear this again and again. This is a distraction. I mean, they want the fight still to be against uh, neoliberalism. 
but it's 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 not working, uh, and it's not even working among, for instance, the squad, right? Uh, AOC and, and Ilhan and Omar and uh, Rashid Tlaib and, and and so forth, um, because I mean these are women of color, and you know they've got a certain social democratic orientation, but they know, experience, smell. The, the racism, the xenophobia, and so forth, uh, and they're, they're very, very uh, opposed to Trump, and they really see that this is a pressing issue. It's not a distraction. This is where the real business of, of politics is, is in opposing this. Um, so this line that Trumpism is a distraction and we got to focus on fighting neoliberalism, it's, it's not doing too well, and so they, they, they try to massage their criticisms and split the difference, and they, they try to do a number of things. But the key point in terms of uh, the Obama-Trump voters and the flip to Trump is these folks view, the anti-neoliberal left people view the Obama-Trump voters as a key constituency right. that they can potentially capture and win away from Trump. Because if the narrative that they put forward were correct, that these people were rebelling against neoliberalism and not embracing racism and xenophobia and misogyny, if, if that were correct, then these people were, would be there to line up instead behind uh, the social democratic programs and so forth of the anti-neoliberal left. And uh, this goes along with um, the, the, the basic political problem that these people have had for decades upon decades, they, they don't have a mass base. Mm -hmm. They want to get a mass base and they don't have much in common with the great mass of the American people. Um, so they think that they can buy off these people with social programs, you know, and, yeah. and economic incentives. And this is the whole trope about what's the matter with Kansas and so forth. You know, why are people not voting their so-called economic interests? Right. Why are they voting for the Republicans? Why are they, you know, lining up behind Trump? And there's concerted efforts again and again to try to win over these people you have nothing in common with by giving them stuff. Uh, and they're at it again. Yeah. And I feel like every day I hear someone say, you know, it's not enough to be against Trump, we have to be for something with the assumption that, um, you know, opposing authoritarianism and proto-fascism is not a something in and of itself, but one has to have something else. And by which they always seem to mean some sort of uh, social democratic economic program. Yeah, well, as you said to me, it was kind of enlightening in its simplicity. You know, the left does need to stand for something. But what it needs to stand for is not necessarily uh, a social democratic economic program. Mm -hmm. You see a, a kind of convergence in terms of the political line and the, the narratives that are being put forward because a lot of it's not just like the anti neoliberal left people who think that they're to the left of the, the mainstream of the Democratic Party, the moderates in the Democratic Party. Uh, have been doing the same thing in uh, the midterm elections. Um, 
they ran on so-called, you know, kitchen table issues, pocketbook yeah. issues, right. uh, de-emphasized Trump. De- they've they've de-emphasized uh, the Mueller investigation, the uh, collusion with the Putinite government in, in, in Russia, the uh, obstruction of justice on the part of Trump. Right. Uh, they, 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 they dance around immigration issues con- continually, uh, and they're constantly trying to appeal to these same, not necessarily the Obama-Trump voters, but they're trying to appeal to people that they can win away in elections, voters that they can win away from the Republicans. Yeah, but it's also important to point out, and I know if you've made this point before, that even though the Democrats were running on these kitchen table issues and de-emphasizing um, Trump, the 2018 elections were seen by everyone as a referendum on Trump, and that was the reason for the Democratic landslide. Sure. I mean, bo- both things are true. Uh, in other words, it makes sense for an, elect- an electoral strategy, if that's your idea of politics is electoral politics. Right. It makes sense to take for granted that you've got the anti-Trump vote sewn up. Right, right. And then to focus on other things. Yeah. And, and, you know, so you focus on kitchen table yeah. issues and, and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, and that makes you some great leftist like, you know, Nancy mm. Pelosi or something. Uh, <laughs> so is there any data to back up this? narrative about Obama Trump voters that we hear from the anti-neoliberal left? Um, Obama is black. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's it. it, it it's that factoid right. combined with a facile assumption that of course, no racist would ever dream of voting for a black candidate, no matter what. Therefore the factoid plus the unwarranted assumption shows you that uh, these are not racist voters. Yeah, and it feels like we live in this world where we often just believe things because we hear them repeated so many times and from so many different places. So if we're getting the same message about Trump voters on our social media feeds and in our left publications and the mainstream media, we assume these things to be true just because they're repeated from so many different places. And there's confirmation bias. Yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah, yeah, you have to say okay, okay. People get, you know, inundated with this. They 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 repeat it unthinkingly, but that is partly because something about them, yeah, makes that conducive to their way of thinking. So we have to ask why that is. You know, who are the the political um, groups? Who are what, what political orientation finds this a convenient uh, line of argument, despite, you know, the absence of evidence and actually now a good deal of evidence against it. Yeah. You know, why, why are people wanting to hear this? Um, well, there is very good reason for the Republicans to, to want to believe this. They want to believe that, uh, you know, it was the failed policies of the Democrats or the elites and the corruption and mm. the swamp and you know, they've got their own set of reasons. Um, the anti-neoliberal left has its own reasons for wanting to believe this. I mean, the, the, the basic problem is that 
both groups um, have not much concern for truth and, and facts. Uh, their, their modes of doing politics are, you know, post-truth modes of doing politics. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's very problematic, and I think it's it's that general lack of concern for accuracy, for facts, for truth that's shared by a good deal of the, the left. This helped pave the way for Trumpism. You know, when people want to say, you know, who's to blame for Trump's victory, I think there's a lot of blame to go around. probably dozens of them, uh, academic studies, arguing that uh, Trump voters were not motivated by anti-neoliberal sentiment, by economic hardship, but instead were motivated by racism, authoritarianism, sexism, nativism. So is the persistence of this anti-neoliberal Trump voter myth merely due to the fact that people just haven't seen these studies? It, it might well be that they're not familiar with the academic studies, but that doesn't really explain or excuse persistence of a narrative yeah. that the Obama-Trump voter is in rebellion against neoliberalism, despite all of the evidence. Why are these people not familiar with the evidence if they are indeed not familiar with the evidence? Are they just looking the other way? Why are they not concerned to find out what the real deal is? Why do they think it's acceptable just to take a fact that these people voted for Obama, then for Trump, and spin some story and keep peddling the story as if that story is correct explanation when they have no evidence that it's not. It's a lack of respect for their audience. It's a lack of respect for evidence and, and, and truth that allows them just to uh, keep peddling their story without regard to checking on its uh, factual accuracy. Well, it seems like the evidence for this narrative about the anti-neoliberal Trump voter is almost always anecdotal, right? Like the media coverage is about how we went to some random town in the Midwest and talked to some random person. Diner in Iowa. It's always a diner in Iowa. Right. Diner in Iowa, coal mine in West Virginia, some random place talked to like two people. And that's the evidence for a whole thesis about the motivations of all Trump voters. And you can basically defend any thesis if that's your mode of proof. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that, that, that kind of narrative journalism. You know, it's, it's a bunch of anecdotes and it doesn't tell you anything. And uh... Yeah, it's just entertaining storytelling that can be highly deceptive, especially when it plays into your pre-existing confirmation bias. So before we even get into the specific findings of your study, maybe we can first just head on tackle this question of how a racist could vote for Obama in the first place. Yeah, I think that there are two basic uh, points. And, and one, I mentioned the name Jamal Bowie. Uh, he, he was pushing back against this, you know, idea that the vote for Obama proves that they're not racist. He was pushing back. Uh, from the beginning, and what he said and what others have said is, look, 
the 2016 election was fought on a very different basis than those that Obama won in 2008 and 2012. Mm-hmm. Obama was running against John McCain, and then he was running against Mitt Romney, and neither of those candidates, the Republicans, made racial animus central to their campaigns. Right. Those elections were not fought on the ground of, you know, being for or against racism and xenophobia. Right. Yeah. So if you're a racist and, 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 and that's not the issue that's there in the election and there's not much to choose from between the candidates on the reestablishment of white supremacy, because right. neither are going that way, neither the Republican nor the Democrat. So you vote on other bases. Right. Secondly, statistics have shown, uh, these are statistics from the Pew uh, Foundation and, and, and so forth, that uh, among white voters without college education, support for the Republican Party as against the Democratic Party rose markedly during Obama's presidency. Mm-hmm. So it, it rose uh, markedly after 2008, and then rose even further after 2012. Mm-hmm. Conversely, support for the Democrats fell among that uh, subgroup of the population. Yeah, I'm looking at this graph from a talk you recently gave called Party Identification yeah. of Whites Without a College Education. That's the name of the graph. And it's showing that for most of the 90s and the first half of the aughts, about half of whites without a college education identified as Republican and the other half identified as Democrat. Um, but it's, then in 2008, after Obama's elected, you see the two lines, the red and blue lines in the graph start to diverge sharply. And the red line shoots up to 58 and the blue line shoots down to 35. 58 to 35. So that's a 23 point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and back in 2008, they were basically at the same level. Yeah. So this is a, in the space of uh, nine years, you got a, a 23 mm-hmm. point uh, change. Right. So this happens during Obama's presidency. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, why? Well, in a very important recent book called Identity Crisis, three researchers, uh, John Sides, uh, Michael Tesler, and Lynn Vavrick, they argue that what happened is, well, among these, you know, white non-Hispanic voters without college education, these are people who don't tend to follow politics closely. So they only belatedly, after most of the country, came to recognize and are probably still coming to recognize that the parties have changed and that the Republican Party is their party. Mm-hmm. It's the white people's party. Back in the day, we didn't have that. Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, there were, you know, racist Southern Democrats uh, and there were, you know, moderate and liberal Republicans. Right. Uh, and th- that begins to change with the Voting Rights Act put in by uh, Lyndon Johnson in the mid 60s. And so in the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you begin to get um, a realignment in American politics, a realignment of, of who's, you know, what, what politicians are, what party, but also a realignment of voters. The thing that's not self-evident is that that realignment is still taking place 
and, and these researchers hypothesize that it's still taking place among people who uh, don't follow politics closely because they don't follow politics closely. It's taken them a long time to recognize this fact. And, you know, the election of a black guy as president comes as a moment of awakening. So those, I think, are probably the two things that kind of like just from an intuitive level cause one to say, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe racists could vote for, for, for Obama. But then you get some additional statistics, like in this book, Identity Crisis, and they have like people with just blatantly racist attitudes, like not wanting a family member to date a member of another race. Okay, that's just blatantly out and out, you know, uh, racist. Obama got the, a not insignificant number of votes from people like that. You know, and then there's all, all, all of the other data. I mean, the, the data show that, by and large, these Obama-Trump voters are much more racist, much more xenophobic, much more misogynistic and authoritarian than, uh, let's say, the Obama voters that didn't flip, yeah. that, that voted for Hillary Clinton, for instance. So if listeners are interested in reading some of Andrew Kleiman's work on Obama-Trump voters, they definitely need to go to MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. That's all one word, MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. And you'll see he has two papers there, one called Obama-Trump Voters Rebelling Against Neoliberalism or Embracing Racism, Misogyny, and Authoritarianism. And the other paper is called Which Obama Voters Flipped to Trump, Which Did Not, Why? There's also video of a recent talk that Andrew did at the, at the Left Forum in New York City on this topic. Speaking of Marxist Humanist Initiative, perhaps we should take a moment to talk about our organization before we finish our conversation about Obama-Trump voters. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. 
MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So Andrew, you base your research on Obama-Trump voters on the American National Election Survey of 2016, which has lots of detailed information about voters. They have responses to survey questions of all kinds and a lot of detailed um, demographic information about voters. Um, how were you able to use this survey data to get inside the heads of the Obama-Trump voters? So I was concerned, unlike a lot of people, I, I was concerned really to, as you're saying, get into their heads. I wanted to paint a portrait primarily of who the Obama-Trump voters are. You know, is there any truth to this anti-neoliberal left narrative that, that these people were flipping to Trump in an act of rebellion against neoliberalism that in, inflicted economic hardship on them? Okay, so I wanted to get at, you know, what their attitudes are, what their economic situation is, and, and so forth and so on. So I ended up looking at about six dozen different variables, was able to get like averages uh, and, you know, other measures for the Obama-Trump voters, for the uh, people who didn't vote for Trump, and for other Trump voters. In other words, uh, people who voted for Trump but had not voted for, for Obama. Uh, and I was able to compare the, the attitudes, uh, looked at questions of various kinds. And, and so I say, okay, all these questions have to do with immigrants or immigration. And these have to do with attitudes to blacks. I put them in categories and, uh, you know, did certain averages and uh, other simple measures. Uh, and I found humongous differences between, say, the, the, the people who didn't vote for Trump on the one hand and the Obama-Trump voters on the other. Right. In general, when it came to attitudes like regarding race, uh, regarding women, uh, immigration and so forth, in general the Obama-Trump voters were much closer in their attitudes to other Trump voters uh, than to the people who didn't vote for Trump. And in some cases, they were, were more extreme. They were more to the right than uh, other Trump voters on average. And just to be clear, yeah. the Obama-Trump voters are very close to Trump voters on issues like attitudes toward African-Americans, attitude towards women, toward immigrants. Um, authoritarian tendencies. Right. To generalize, when it comes to attitudes to general policy questions, not having to do with race, sex, you know, gender, uh, immigration, general policy questions like, uh, should the government do more to aid the poor or something like that? When we get those kinds of questions, the Obama-Trump voters' average response is kind of midway, somewhere in the middle between the people who didn't vote for Trump 
Hmm. and the people who voted for Trump who never voted for Obama. So their responses to things like that were midway. But when it came to these identity-based attitudes, attitudes to blacks, to women, to immigration and immigrants, and to the uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, then the Obama-Trump voters were much more close in their attitudes to the they were much closer to the other Trump voters than to the people who didn't vote for Trump. And in some cases, they were, they were more extreme. Okay, so what does this say about political strategy? Can we woo away Obama-Trump voters with positive economic proposals? I don't think so. Um, and that's partly on the basis of you know, the statistical analysis that I've done, but it's largely on the basis of other things as well. For instance, every opinion poll shows that no matter what happens, Trump support doesn't fall. You know, so the opinion polls don't move. Republicans got uh, 45% in the midterm elections uh, for the House. Uh, Trump won 46% in, in of the popular vote in 2016. These things are not moving. Um, these numbers and the attitudes of by far the largest share of the population are pretty well fixed. But I think it's more than that. You have to not be so economic determinist in your thinking. Not, I don't mean you. I mean one. Yeah. Uh, and think that what drives people is these pocketbook issues alone. Uh, that's convenient for people who are trying to win over a mass base to their political orientation and they want their own political power for their own organizations or their counter hegemonic project or whatever it is. You know, they want, they desperately need and want a mass base and they, they need the prospect of a mass base to recruit followers. Yes, we can win this. So knowing that the they have no connection to the great mass of the American people themselves. They think that they can buy them off with goodies. Yeah. And they, so they, they want to believe and they want their followers to believe that these people can be bought off with goodies and that that's all that matters to them because these are, you know, stupid people, you know, cash potatoes and, and fly over country and they have no minds and all they have is, is, is mouths and, you know, they sit in front of the TV. That's, that's the, the, the view of people. A lot of the left has. Yeah. So one needs to appreciate not only that these economic appeals don't work, but to understand that Trump is giving his base, including, you know, what seems to be a large, large share of the Obama-Trump voters, he's giving them what they want. Yeah. Okay, there were people who voted for Obama when race was not a salient election issue, and they, and they flipped to Trump. And every horror inflicted upon immigrants, refugees, the family separations, the deplorable conditions in the concentration camps, the Charlottesville massacre, the, the, the massacre in, 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 in Pittsburgh, all of this, again and again and again, nothing moves the pro-Trump voters. Yeah. And, you know, it's being hypothesized, and I think it needs to be taken seriously, 
that the cruelty is the point. This is what these people are attracted to. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody, but, but one has to take into consideration that there is, among a lot of the population, an appeal of all of this. Proto-fascism has not majority appeal in this country, but mass appeal. And that has been the case for decades upon decades upon decades, well prior to Trump, well prior to neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, I just read about um, a Frankfurt School study. Uh, this was probably conducted by uh, Theodore Adorno or something. This was in uh, the mid-1940s. And it was estimated that uh, about 30% of the uh, U.S. population had fascist proclivities at the time. Hmm. That's in the that's in the midst of World War II, yeah, right? Right. Um, and then yeah. I remember, you know, growing up in the suburb of Washington D.C. in Maryland, and I remember the, the presidential campaign of uh, George Wallace in, in 1972, and then I remember the opposition to uh, school desegregation. Right after that, I mean, my school was was desegregated in the um, the start of uh, 1973, and you know that caused huge uproar. And then in in, in Boston the, the the next year, so it's not just a southern phenomenon. Yeah. So one really does need to appreciate, uh, first of all, the, the the mass appeal that authoritarianism has, and the very virulent racism. Yeah. Uh, of so much of the um, population and, yeah. and, and sexism and uh, xenophobia and so forth. One has to, to not think that, that, that these people who are going for this are all delusional and stupid. You know, think that they're voting for what it is that they do want. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the problem that we need to confront is, is that we're dealing with people who are not easily going to be won over because they are getting what they want and they they are not uh, a group of people who um, are pining for, you know, social democratic solution yeah. uh, to, to, to everything. Yeah. So just to be clear, were economic factors at all responsible in any way for voters flipping from Obama to Trump? Yes and no. Okay. For instance, right after Trump gets elected, the percentage of Republican voters saying that the economy is doing well shot way up. Okay, so they were very down on how the economy was doing under Obama. Okay, and then they're, you know, very, very positive right after Trump is elected, and there was no objective change in economic conditions to speak of. Conversely, among Democratic voters, you get the opposite. They were basically saying, oh, yeah, the economy is pretty good. That's under Obama. Uh, when Trump gets elected, boom, all of a sudden, their evaluation of the state of the economy plummets. Okay, So it's not an objective change in economic conditions that's driving this uh, it's an expression of their political preferences. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's really it's really their answer is really performative. Right. So I'll say the economy is 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 doing great or it's crap. 
without regard to the facts, because I, I want to express myself. So, yes, you, 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 you get this economic anxiety and all of these attitudes uh, and policy views that people will state, but this is not the line that has traditionally come from the anti-neoliberal left, which is that, okay, we used to have a kinder, gentler capitalism, and then the evil neoliberals come along in the 70s or 80s, you know, Margaret Thatcher and uh, Reagan, and they impose this harsh, you know, austerity, market-driven kind of capitalism, and it, you know, pummels the working class, and their wages stagnate, and globalization and financialization take their jobs away, and but that's the anti-neoliberal narrative, is that these people's objective economic circumstances have either worsened or not improved in three, four decades, okay? And yeah. that that's why they flipped to Trump, okay? There's no evidence of that. You have been listening to Andrew Kleiman discuss his research on Obama-Trump voters. I'm Brendan Cooney. If you want to dig deeper into this topic, you should check out Andrew's papers on With Sober Senses. That's the online publication of Marxist Humanist Initiative. And that's at MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. The aim of this podcast is to project these ideas out into the world and to find people who recognize the importance of engaging with these ideas, of developing ideas. So if you find this conversation compelling, please don't be a passive listener. Leave a comment on the MHI website, send us an email, or come to a public event. Uh, but what we, what we need is a real change in the attitude towards facts, towards the truth, towards evidence, um, because you can put stuff out there, and as long as people think, well, you know, you can choose your your facts. Uh, they've got their facts, and we've got our alternative facts. We're, we're not going to get anywhere, and the ground for Trumpism is going to be laid again and again. People have got to wake up and, and understand that we can't live like this anymore. Uh, we, we have to not use our intuitions and what we like as guides to, to living uh, and to acting.